0: The following is a repeat broadcast of the Global Research News Hour, originally airing April 13, 2018. My name is Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour airs weekly on Winnipeg based CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is also available for download at globalresearch.ca. This week, We mark the fourth anniversary of the death by suicide of an individual, investigative journalist and independent media critic who served as a major inspiration for many in the post-9-11 period. His name was Michael Rupert. The son of a father and mother who were both deeply involved with America's intelligence agencies, Mike was given top-secret clearance from a young age. He would attend UCLA and graduate with honors in political science. In 1973, he would then pursue a career as a narcotics officer in the Los Angeles Police Department. He would be forced out in 1978 after blowing the whistle on CIA dealing of drugs within the United States. Eighteen years later, he would confront CIA director John Deutsch at a public forum about these illegal covert activities. Director Deutsch's poor handling of the encounter reportedly resulted in his being passed over for a guaranteed position on President Clinton's cabinet. Toward the end of the 20th century and throughout the first decade of the 21st, Rupert's investigative reporting and analysis got distribution through a hard-hitting newsletter, which would become a website, from thewilderness.com. Eventually, From the Wilderness would begin touching on themes that would establish Mike Rupert's reputation as a dissident thinker and muckraking reporter. A former associate and longtime friend, Carolyn Baker, recalls that period in an interview we recorded and aired within days of Rupert's death. What are some of the maybe the standout uh, moments for you that maybe helped embody uh, what Mike was all about?
1: Well, um, just the incredible,
2: impeccable research that he did. Um, he was very picky about putting things out unless they were very well documented, and um, he certainly helped with uh, understanding the Bush uh, administration and that whole selection process that was not an election, but rather a selection. Um, he helped uh, all of us understand 9-11, you know, almost Everybody who comments on their knowledge of Mike says he's the one who woke me up. Um, so the man the man really served, a, did a tremendous service um, for people in terms of awareness, raising awareness and being able to document what he was saying. And we have the greatest respect for that at From the Wilderness.
0: Mike Rupert would become one of the more credible figures extolling the claim that the 9-11 attacks were deliberately facilitated by elements within the U.S. government, military, and intelligence apparatus in order to furnish a pretext for what would be called the war on terrorism. He released a popular video, The Truth and Lies of 9-11, and in 2004 released the book, Crossing the Rubicon, Decline of the American Empire at the End of the Age of Oil. One of Mike's close associates during that time was a New York-based academic, writer, and scholar by the name of Jamie Hecht. We reached out to Jamie, who is now a psychotherapist with a practice in Los Angeles. We first asked about how he first came in contact with Mike Rupert. Jamie mentioned his exposure to the September 11th attacks and his conviction that something was wrong with the official story.
3: I came across Mike Rupert's work on the Internet it seemed to me more grounded and logical and courageous um, than anyone else's. Um, it, was clear, it was clear he was willing to contemplate nearly unthinkable hypotheses about who might be responsible and how this might have occurred. And I contacted him. And the way I did it was I saw that he was coming to speak in New York. Uh in Harlem, and uh, by that point I was living in Harlem at the time. And I said to him, I'm not really a journalist. I'm a poet. I write academic scholarship about literature and the humanities. But I was radicalized in my teenage years by listening to Daniel Sheehan and Helen Caldecott and people like that. And I believe in what you're doing. I've read some of your work, and I'd like to work with you. I'm no journalist, but I've published some articles on Counterpunch, which I had at that point. He said, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you a shot. I have a good feeling about you. A few weeks later, he contacted me, inviting me to write my first piece for FTW on a trial basis, he said, which was The Limited Hangouts of 9-11. He gave me that title, and I wrote the piece. And I wrote it with passion, and he liked the writing. He liked the thoughts. He liked the conclusions and the flow of the logic. And I wrote for him some more. Ultimately, he gave me the title of senior staff writer at FromTheWilderness.com. Later, he began calling me assistant managing editor as well, Um, he being the managing editor. um, And I suppose um, that was a good fit. And as the 2004 campaign approached, Mike shifted into high gear with the book that he had long been meaning to write, mainly about 9-11, but also about the way things work in this phase of the history of the United States. Crossing the Rubicon, I remember the day that he and I and I think two other staffers that From the Wilderness tried to come up with the subtitle. Ken Levine was there and I think someone else. And it took us about uh, 10 minutes of rearranging the components of it until it gelled in my mind and I went, okay, I've got it, Crossing the Rubicon, The Decline of the American Empire at the End of the Age of Oil and we stuck with that. And that's how I met Mike.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about the the personal side of of, uh, Mike, both the benefits and the challenges of working with him uh, in front of the wilderness and crossing the Rubicon?
3: He did have a lot of psychological problems from a trauma background that was pretty severe. He had been through hell as a kid, and it really left its mark on him. But it did not, I think, impinge on the quality of his work. It was a broad sector of his mind that was especially keen and oriented to reality. Indeed, more so than most of us are, because functioning well in this culture, as in any culture, but perhaps particularly the culture of late capitalism and imperial decline, requires a degree of ongoing self-deception that Mike was deliberately outside of. I call it deliberate, but I have to add that that kind of happy illusion that allows us to participate fully in what this culture is and does had been stripped from him by, yeah, childhood trauma, as I've mentioned, but much more so by the adult trauma of believing in its institutions, being a Los Angeles police officer, and... Being the son of an intelligence family, indeed a CIA family, Uh, and here I'm thinking of his mother, not his father, and experiencing both of those authoritative institutions unmasked as authoritarian, um, perverse institutions whose goals are the opposite of those that they publicly espouse, that's a trauma I'll just add that there's a particular book that I've read about the psychology of whistleblowers that I found bittersweet, compelling, and extremely insightful. It's by uh, a psychoanalytic sociologist named um, uh, C. Fred Alford, Whistleblowers, Broken Lives and Organizational Power. And I recommend it to everyone who has been touched by Mike's work, and who's interested in why it 's so difficult for people to come forward in an influential way about state crimes against democracy
0: um, Jamie, did you have much involvement with Mike uh, after the uh, the Venezuela period i mean and the from the wilderness uh, pretty much collapsed and went defunct did, Do you have any recollections or, or have had you had much involvement with him? Uh, After that period, through the the, the Collapse movie, the radio show, uh, what are your recollections from that period?
3: It was clear he was a changed man. The brush with death in Venezuela was not the first, but it was the most serious. Um, At one point, uh, they, uh, with a capital T, if I remember correctly, did the old trick where uh, they loosened the lug nuts on the right rear tire uh, of his car somehow without his noticing. And he was about to get on the freeway and um, for some reason uh, checked and discovered uh, that 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 sabotage had been done and he was able to rectify it and drive away safely. Um, Of course, at the beginning of his uh, life as a uh, investigative journalist, whistleblower, dissident. When he was still in LAPD, he was shot at, got a lot of death threats. But in Venezuela, it wasn't a question of whether or not the thing was going to happen. It had happened, and it was a question of whether or not it was going to kill him. But he went to Canada to recover. I don't know who took care of him, but they did a good job. And collapse net was his way of leaving 9-11 behind. He used to say, we got trampled by an elephant, but it's behind us now the opportunity has passed. And he looked at the even larger picture of industrial capitalism, murdering the living planet, a thing that because like Derek Jensen write and speak about so well. But he did identify with Native indigenous American spirituality, particularly, as is well known, that of the Lakota people. Critics call his engagement with it Cultural appropriation. They're entitled to that view. Um, I think it makes sense along certain lines. Uh, others appreciate his discovery of the great gifts that that culture bears. Um, he was a great appreciator of it. And by some people, at any rate, in the Lakota community, he apparently was welcomed and given the name Tracker of Truth which, as you can imagine, is a very good
0: fit. Jamie, I was wondering if, if maybe you, you have any concluding thoughts about uh, the kind of legacy that, that Mike will leave behind.
3: Well, my belief is that he is the person who figured out how 9-11 was pulled off by the perpetrators. Others assumed reasonably that there was a stand-down order. But the people who wanted to do their jobs on 9-11 were many, and some of them were at the FAA, and some of them were in the Air Force, at NORAD, and the Northeast Air Defense Sector. They would not have obeyed a stand-down order. Some of them would have disobeyed it. Mike knew that. He knew that that couldn't be right because it didn't explain the thing. And he looked for another explanation, and I knew him and was with him while he was puzzled at the beginning and then step-by-step step figured it out. I was in the room with him when he was on speakerphone with, um, Barbara Honegger, the author of the most important book about October Surprise, and that's its title,
0: um,
3: which threw the 1980 election, um, to, uh, Ronald Reagan, um, Barbara Honegger is the resident Air Force Base historian at Andrews Air Force Base. And Mike uh, had a conversation with her regarding 9-11 aviation, the scrambling of fighter aircraft, which I was privileged to hear because I was there. Mike figured out that it was through the scheduling of a number. I used to know all these numbers. I don't remember any of them now. Of simultaneous war game exercises right during the week of September the 9th, a time when several domestic and foreign intelligence agencies had warned the executive branch of the United States that there would be attacks using civilian aircraft
4: uh, as
3: weapons to fly into a list of American buildings symbolic of American life, including the eventual targets. It was a list of 10, I believe. And the people who had those warnings included Dick Cheney, and the person who changed the rules about who can schedule war games was Dick Cheney, and the person who scheduled the war games in spite of the warnings was Dick Cheney, and the person who, as Peter Dale Scott has written, had his hands on parallel equipment underneath the White House in the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, equipment parallel to that at the uh, FAA and NORAD was Dick Cheney. And the person who insisted that he and George Bush testify only in secret, unrecorded, and not under oath was Dick Cheney. So Mike Rupert wrote a book called Crossing the Rubicon that was a case, as he called it, of means, motive, and opportunity for the crime of 9-11 against Dick Cheney, hoping that it would throw the 2004 election. It did not. But his legacy was that if you paid enough attention did enough legwork, and stayed in touch with the ethical drive driven by empathy for the victims, you could figure out how a state crime against democracy worked, and you could get the word out, because not all of our First Amendment rights have been taken away just yet. You can still publish a dissident book. You can't get it reviewed in the mainstream press, because it wasn't, but it was the best-selling book on 9-11 For several years, with the exception of the Kane report, and though no major news outlet reviewed the book, they didn't attack it either because they didn't want to draw attention to it. And as Mike pointed out, he was never sued for libel by the people he accused because they knew it was true and they didn't want it coming out in court. And that, I think, is not all of Mike's legacy, but that's the heart of it.
0: For a Canadian perspective, we caught up with Barry Silverthorne. He's based in the greater Toronto area. In addition to producing the acclaimed peak oil documentary, End of Suburbia, in which there was a cameo featuring Mike Rupert, Barry had been a video editor and technician working behind the scenes on a special roundtable for the Vision Television Network, the first major broadcast featuring Mike Rupert talking about 9-11 and the first talk of his that I had ever seen. We got Barry to open up about what he remembers of Mike from that broadcast.
5: In the roundtable, I was really quite shocked at how easily he was able to take on Ron Adke, who was one of the other guests, who was uh, one of the people overseeing thesis. And uh, Ron got a lot of facts wrong in the discussion, and, and Mike was right on top of him. So it was fun to watch
0: yeah, the CSIS is uh, Canada's uh, CIA, you might say, and uh, they're defenders of the official story.
5: Yeah. Yes, and he, you know, he one fact that he got wrong, he he actually was quite surprised to find out that there were still uh, bombing raids going on in Iraq between the first war and the second. Uh,
0: I'm wondering if you might like to comment on uh, Mike as a person, you know, what, what really stands out for you that, that maybe might... Uh, come as a bit of a surprise for uh, some of our listeners
4: um,
5: i mean i it's not probably a surprise but I found that his research was so meticulous and so well done and so well backed up and uh, you know even when he did get things wrong he was always kind of the first one uh, to point that out and to you know to make apologies and make good on it um, I always admired him for that. Um, as I got to know Mike, I found that he was a very complex individual. For example, when we went, when we wanted to interview him, and you know, it was very hard for him to find the time. Uh, you know, at the time, I thought we're willing to travel all the way to California and and give you a venue. And um, I, he said to me later, this was months later when we did, met at a screening of The End of Suburbia. He said, "Well, you know, the other the other people that I've talked to sent me a limousine to, to pick me up, you know, and I was never sure if he was joking or, you know, whether he was serious that we didn't treat him well enough."
0: <laughs> well, Mike had gone to Venezuela for a period. Uh, this is around two thousand six, and uh, and he'd gotten quite sick. He had to come. He had to leave, and his first stop was in Canada. And you looked after him during that time, and I, I wonder if you might like to share anything about what that experience was like
5: well at the time Mike came to me it seemed he didn't feel that he wanted to come back to the United States he had already left the United States and um, I didn't think that um, he felt particularly comfortable coming back I remember meeting him at the airport and he looked very thin and very tired and the first thing he wanted to do was uh, have a plate of ribs because he had nothing but you know Venezuelan food for months and uh, he just wanted to get back to being, I guess, back in his old world again.
0: Yeah, so that, uh, I'm sure he was very grateful for your uh, assistance and cooperation. Well,
5: we went uh, we went shopping for, you know, uh, we went to the thrift stores for used clothes and uh, we made sure that he got some medical care. Uh, I took him out to visit some horses because he really enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the horses. Uh, I put him to work, work chopping wood in the backyard, and, you know, uh,
0: he spent a lot of
5: time sitting in front of the fireplace, reading, reading some books, and, uh, and just resting up. While Mike was staying with me, uh, we had a conversation one day, we were sitting out on the deck with our feet kind of dangling off the deck over the garden, and I, I told him this story about, I don't know where I would read it, but something about, uh, when a bear attacks your campsite, you don't need to outrun the bear. You just have to be faster than the slowest camper. And and uh, Mike really liked that analogy. And it was interesting for years after that, I heard him using that analogy all the time. And it always made me kind of smile thinking about that you know day when we sat there and talked about that.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that is one of his uh, more popular sayings, I think. So <laughs> that's great,
5: and I'd love to know where it came from. If anybody knows, I'd love to know the source of it because it's brilliant.
0: No, I think you uh, eventually uh, conducted him back down to the United States. Um, so I, I don't know if you had much involvement with him beyond that point. Um, no,
5: we he had to get some documents back uh, to his lawyer in New York City, and. We put them in a courier and sent them off. And if I had not seen this for myself, I would never have believed it. But it was virtually impossible to get this package to his lawyer in New York. It got moved uh, to the wrong facility. He tried to track it, and it ended up in Maine or someplace. It's like you couldn't—you—you you the only way you could get this package that lost was through actually trying to do it. I mean, it couldn't happen by accident. So after a few days of trying to get these documents to New York City. Um, Mike was I guess strong enough, felt felt comfortable enough to, to uh go back. So one evening after dinner we got in the car and drove overnight and arrived in New York City in the morning. I um, I dropped him off at Jenna Orkin's apartment and had a quick nap and then I jumped in the car and headed back home after mm. On a personal note, when Mike left my house to go to New York City, he left some uh, Venezuelan bolivars, some coins, in the dresser. And I still keep them there in a little box on the dresser uh, as a memory of of his visit and who he was and his story. And uh, I think that was a nice little thing that he left behind and probably didn't cost him much.
0: Jenna Orkin, just mentioned by Barry Silverthorne, would host Mike Rupert for the next 14 months someone who had researched government and EPA impropriety around the environmental hazards associated with the attacks and affecting numerous first responders, Jenna had first encountered Mike Rupert during the 2004 citizen hearings on 9-11, where she was impressed by Mike's keen and discriminating analysis and especially his research into the war games, which forced an effective stand-down of aircraft intercept procedures. She saw Mike both at his very best and comforted him during his darkest moments. In the months following his death, she composed the account Scout, a memoir of investigative journalist Michael C. Rupert with Against the Dying of the Light. Uh, What do you think was the key to his appeal in the eyes of so many who followed his work?
2: Um, He was able to connect the dots like nobody else, and he was able to present it in a way that wasn't too um, highfalutin, It made sense. It made glorious sense, and was somewhat revelatory. And um, also, he had enormous charisma that worked in his favor.
0: He seemed to achieve a level of notoriety around nine eleven, after nine eleven, as you pointed out. And and then something seemed to go wrong. There was that incident where his uh, the, the the computers and his equipment and. Uh, his office was smashed, uh, I think it was around 2006, and that to, seemed to lead to his departure from the U.S. to Venezuela. Uh, while you were close to him, what, what do you believe drove him to some of the actions that he ended up taking, and uh, apparently to his detriment?
2: With respect to the destruction of the computers, that was during the time when he and Stan Goff were investigating the death by friendly fire of pat tillman in afghanistan and that investigation was then picked up by the mainstream media across the board and across the country leading to the resignations or firings of a number i forget the number now so i won't venture but um, donald rumsfeld left his position after that and a number of others did as well so mike understood from the smashing of the computers that this is a warning, next time it'll be you. Um, And he ran away to Venezuela, believing he would be given political asylum. And he just kept waiting and waiting and was told to keep a low profile. He would stand out as an American. So he had to stick around the hotel, and he got extremely depressed. And he was calling me every day suicidal and for the extent that i knew him in new york when he stayed with me for 14 months he was suicidal every day all day for let's say the first seven months and the only thing that got him out of it was um receiving notification that he would get his inheritance that his stepmother had died and i used that argument to keep him alive it was like Scheherazade. Every time I left the house to go to work, I would say, okay, you're not going to kill yourself in the next six hours, right? And he would agree. And because he felt, you know, as a cop, he was a man of his word, he, was, he wouldn't kill himself in the next six hours. It was very much an AA one-day-at-a-time approach. So thank God he didn't kill himself on my watch. But he was looking out the window and muttering to himself, I know when and I know how and, you know, ominous things like that. It never left his mind. Mm. So if you were to ask what would he be doing if he were alive, I would answer he would be killing himself again. He would have done it, if not that day in April, what, four years ago, he would have done it the next day or the one after that.
0: As somebody who knew Mike uh, very well, I was wondering if, there's anything you would like to address in terms of the way he's being remembered by admirers and detractors alike?
2: The thing I'd like to correct the record about the most is what peak oil means because um, many of his detractors use that to malign him and everybody else in that movement. Peak oil never alleged that we're reaching the end of oil. It said we're reaching the end of easy oil and that has been proven correct, because the methods that they're using now to extract oil, um, despite the drop in price, economic price, the price environmentally has been enormous, and that's patently obvious, from the BP disaster to, you know, uh, gas and oil, uh, well, and chemicals and people's drinking water and all of that. So... Um, that's not going to stop the detractors, but that's thank you for the opportunity to set the record straight there.
0: W- what are your understandings of uh, you know what what made him tick? Could you maybe just give us some insights in that regard?
2: All right, let me preface this by saying that I speak as a New Yorker and if you know if you've been here, you know that it's fairly common for us to go to shrinks therapists, and I've spent a certain amount of time doing that and also reading about it so i'm not a professional and don't pretend to be but i'm certainly very interested in it and so i will give you my two cents worth there um mike's father left him and his mother when mike was i don't know eight and the father would go off on these long business trips and then come back and go off again and come back And Mike felt very abandoned, and um, obviously, as children do, he felt that if he'd been a better son or, you know, pleased his father in some way, Daddy wouldn't have left, especially as Mike, for whatever reason, had very little respect for his mother. Um, She drove him nuts. And when he lived with me... uh, I reminded him of his mother, and I drove him nuts. He did not have respect for women, particularly women his own age. If they were much younger, then that was a little different. So he had this dichotomy, um, uh, adoring the father figure, despising the mother figure. And he would talk about Jungian archetypes, and what I finally understood was that he was really talking about Hollywood stereotypes. And again, I think this worked both to his advantage and his detriment. So the archetype of the hero kept him going, but then when it failed to work, when he did not become the hero who turned around the ship of state, being the entire world, from its path of destruction, Uh, When those efforts failed, I think that's when the other side of him rose up, the suicidal side, which he considered his feminine side, because his mother was very depressed and she was on antidepressants. And when he was staying with me, the doctors were prescribing antidepressants and he was sleeping all the time, as his mother used to. And um, so he loathed. That image of himself, the feminine, the passive, the incapacitated. And so that, that view of the world where it's you're either on the top or you're on the bottom, I think that also
0: destroyed him. How, how would you sum up his, his legacy, maybe his uh, uh, crowning achievement, if you were?
2: Yeah, the crowning achievements were many and they were very weighty. The website, which is now fromthewilderness.net, the the main book, Crossing the Rubicon, the movie Collapse, is well worth watching. Um, And once you've you've seen those, decide where you want to go from there. And the other legacy that Mike left, which is very valuable, is in his uh, disciples or colleagues. Well, they were first disciples and then colleagues. Rice Farmer is one. Mark Rabinowitz at oilempire.us, who has been a guest of yours, was a very esteemed colleague, and his websites are worth viewing. Nick Levis is worth watching and reading as well, Rice Farmer's website. So um, we all owe Mike an enormous debt for... Giving
0: us the insights that he did. You're listening to a special broadcast of the Global Research News Hour airing on Winnipeg based radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is available for download on the website globalresearch.ca. This week, we are taking a special look at the life and legacy of investigative journalist Michael C. Rupert on the occasion of the fourth anniversary of his death, determined to be a suicide. In your book, uh, Crossing the Rubicon, in in the introduction, I'm just going to read a quote from it. I had studied how the investigation into the murder of President John F. Kennedy had been controlled. I had also personally painful and verifiable knowledge that the murder of John's brother Robert was a CIA operation. All the goodwill and energy of the researcher activists in each of these cases was deliberately and meticulously sabotaged by interested parties and their allies in the dominant political class. Um, Mike, is it possible for you to, to just sort of help you know, spell out that, 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 the, the nature of that sabotage, the, the, the pattern that you saw with uh, the Kennedy brothers and what we're, we've seen today with, with 9-11?
4: We're also seeing it with
6: Fukushima. Mm. And we're also seeing it with climate collapse. This is the same machine that has always been there and available and had available to it enormous amounts of resources, a tsunami of resources to throw at a disinformation campaign to muddy the waters and confuse uh, people's perception, The, the purpose of which was to overwhelm, drown out, uh, in noise, the people who were carrying the real message. If, if, for example, me. Uh, we have seen the rise of clear and, and extremely well documented disinformation artists from Alex Jones to many others, uh, who have enormous amounts of money and resources to muddy and confuse the waters. If you go back to the 60s and the 70s, the government program called COINTELPRO, which was directed ruthlessly at uh, the Black Panther Party and the American Indian Movement. It is, uh, has been abundantly documented. War Churchill, uh, who I've met, uh, did a did a great book on it. That that the the the, the government, if you will, and and uh, these are people who will be doing what they do. Don't pin it on one agency. It it is a paradigm within every agency. But they will send infiltrators into campaigns to sow disinformation, to uh, create discord and harmony, to sabotage operations, to muddy the message, to insert poison pills specifically. my uh, uh, Peter Dale Scott was a mentor for many years, and he had a great line, disinformation in order to be effective must be 90% accurate. People will eat a little tab of poison if it's wrapped in a beautiful, sweet, sticky cinnamon bun. But that poison will kill them nonetheless, and that has been the uh, chief tactic used for many years. That's why I have so separated and isolated, uh, put in quarantine, if you will, my own life's body of work, so that it would not be contaminated by the enormous amounts of disinformation that have been sown not only into 9/11 and JFK and and Bobby and Martin and and uh, uh, everything else. That's the way it continues to work. Now,
0: Mark Robinowitz, who was mentioned by our last guest, is a frequent guest on this program. He publishes the site oilempire.us, a political map to connect the dots. His site has an in-memoriam section dedicated to Mike Rupert, among two others, and a lot of material which presents Rupert's investigative work in a very reverential light. He joined us from Eugene, Oregon. Well,
4: I first came across Mike Rupert's work uh, immediately after September 11, when I was trying to find alternative opinions about what had just happened, because my immediate reaction that morning was to suspect some sort of covert operation. I heard him in person shortly after that at an event in Portland, Oregon. It was a presentation that became a video The Truth and Lies of 9 11. And it was extremely impressive. If you go back and watch it uh, almost 17 years later now, it still uh, holds the test of time. I heard him in person a couple more times. He came through Eugene and went to hear him in San Francisco. And we were on a discussion list that talked about the, these topics, ended up writing a couple of articles for his newsletter from the wilderness, even contributed a couple of points to his book, Crossing the Rubicon.
0: Could you comment on how your own research and analysis was influenced by Mike's work?
4: Well, I've found Rupert's connecting of the dots extremely powerful. And one of the first times I heard him speak, he was talking about how, since our society had chosen to avoid connecting dots, like the Kennedy assassination and other crimes of state, it enabled the perpetrators to keep doing more and more of these things. I've been aware of these types of concerns since the 1980s, uh, both in terms of nuclear war plans, ecological problems, energy problems, the dangers of nuclear power, and many other things. Rupert had a very nice way of piecing these concerns together, which I found extremely powerful. Unfortunately, he was very disappointed that his work got read quietly in high places. The Intelligence Committees of Congress were subscribers to his magazine, but he didn't get the kudos and respect that he was hoping for and took it very personally in many ways. And he was disappointed in particular that crossing the Rubicon did not result in Cheney and Bush being denied a second term since the documentation of suppressed warnings and overlapping war games with 9-11 in any rational world would have resulted in prosecutions rather than re-election.
0: So I think that for people who have followed Mike and, and been admirers of Mike and uh, you know, who get, get clued into this whole idea of, of deep politics and, and deep state actions, it's hard to rule out the possibility that maybe this is a suicide that was, or a, a murder by the CIA or whoever that's made to look like a suicide. Uh, I, I was wondering, I, you know, can, can we responsibly uh, rule out that uh, possibility given you know, everything that's, uh, that's out there? Everything well,
4: I can understand why people might have a intuition that, that that is a more accurate description of what happened, but Rupert did write about feeling suicidal. I heard him in person say this uh, a few years before he did die. So I have not the slightest doubt that he did kill himself. But I suspect one of the reasons was the profound disappointment that the world was going to hell in a handbasket and it didn't seem like things were shifting in a good way so in a way you could say that he fired the trigger but it was the bigger social situation of the world that provided some of the rationale I'm not justifying that and I think one of the legacies of Mike Rupert is not just that He did world-class research for a number of years, but that if you're going to deal with deep politics and deep ecology, you need to have some deep inner strength and deep interconnections with those around you. And it's a complicated balance of being able to see the evil in the world and the good in the world and staying sane and stable as things unravel is, I can't... Overstate the
0: importance of that. Talking about uh, you know people who go into this difficult realm. There's another figure named John Judge who, by interesting coincidence, had also died. Uh, it wasn't a suicide, as far as we could tell. It was so much as a, a more of a, a natural cause. Uh, John Judge. Uh, Maybe you might want to just, you know, give us a bit of a lowdown about what uh, his work and maybe how that uh, you relates in some sense, uh, you, that those dynamics may relate to Rupert.
4: Well, John was a similar deep politics researcher uh, from a somewhat different path. They were roughly the same age. John died two days apart from Mike, and he died of complications from a stroke. Um, he had been in ill health for a number of years. But his spirit was awesome, and he focused primarily on the assassinations of the 1960s. John also focused on 9 11 uh, research. He lived in Washington, D.C., he spent most of his life there. His mom was even a whistleblower at the Pentagon. So, like Rupert, he grew up in the shadow of the national insecurity state. But John also had the nerve to point out that some of the 9-11 claims were false, most notably the claim that there was a faked plane crash at the Pentagon that day. And he had the nerve not to compromise on pointing that out, despite the fact that there were 9-11 truthers who were unable to admit that they had been misled in the search for truth. And when you deal with these types of big topics, It's important to have skepticism, not just of the official story, but skepticism of so-called alternatives to the official story, because sometimes they're not correct. Fake news is ubiquitous, and sometimes it masquerades as conspiracies exposing the truth. And John stuck to his facts, and it's a great loss uh, that he is no longer with us as well.
0: I, um, I was just wondering if you, before we close, if, you, if there's maybe a, a certain memory of uh, an encounter with Mike uh, either in person or through some sort of correspondence you might want to share with our listeners.
4: Um, it was a privilege to get to spend some personal time with him at a number of these events and to see his humorous side shine and to have some Great discussions with him while he was preparing *Crossing the Rubicon*, which, despite everything, is still probably the very best book on what happened on 9/11. It's incomplete, but I strongly recommend it. Has his *Truth and Lies of 9/11* film, which I believe is still on YouTube. But both him and John had incredible spirits in the face of collective denial, and their passing is partly a suggestion to the rest of us that we need to be more socially conscious about meeting people's needs for gently and respectfully talking about the deepest issues. And in a way, maybe we need to think about how to transform the psychology of this, and I'm big fan of the truth and reconciliation paradigm for these sorts of crimes of state. And maybe if there was more social and collective interest in these approaches, then pioneers like Mike Rupert uh, would feel more supportive.
0: Maybe, first of all, we should just allude to a a certain metaphor that you brought forward. Uh, Basically, we're facing a crisis situation, and Uh, You made reference to uh, the Titanic, faced with a sinking ship. There are three groups of people you're likely to run into. The uh, people who are in the deer in the headlights, freaking out, they don't know what to do. There are those who are busy making the lifeboats, and and then there are those who want to go to the bar uh, and... uh, get a stiff drink because this, the boat is, is unsinkable yeah. it occurs to me that there's probably a fourth group maybe you could call them traditional activists uh, people who are trying to lobby the skipper to slow down and change course or working with the crew to try to fix the boat or maybe some of them are in the bar handing out DVD copies of the iceberg conspiracy or something like that <laughs> very good There are people who who get peak oil, but then they don't get peak oil. So maybe you could just go through some of the the critical facts that people really need to know to to really get their minds around the the dimensions of this problem.
6: Well, first let's define the Titanic. And the Titanic is human industrial civilization. That's what's sinking. That is what cannot be prevented or stopped. And that's because of the fact of peak oil. Basically, very simply, peak oil is a point in the, all oil production follows a bell curve. It's the point where you reach the top of the bell curve. And after which, no matter how much money, energy, technology, wishful thinking, animal sacrifice, whatever you want to throw at it, nothing is going to increase the amount of oil that is produced.
0: In the final years of his life, Michael Rupert would develop a connection with native spirituality, and assimilate Lakota ceremonies and perspectives into his own worldview. He began to develop this connection in Crestone, Colorado, a small community in the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. He'd stated publicly that he had gone to this spot to die. However, he would eventually return to California, where he would continue with his weekly Sunday night internet radio program, The Lifeboat Hour. It was through this program that Mike connected with Portland, Oregon-based Mimi Gurman. Mike had admired her work on anti-nuclear issues and on the literal fallout from the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, one of the issues about which he was most passionate toward the end of his life. They became close friends. She was the last guest Mike had on his show before his life came to an end that evening. The Global Research News Hour got in touch with Mimi to get her share some memories and thoughts about the departure of Mike from this mortal plane.
7: He had lots of truth talks, Mike and I, and he had me on to that in the beginning and then it kind of expanded from there. We just got to know each other and he wanted to talk more. And mm. I wanted to talk to him. And so in in the process we established a very close friendship off radio.
0: Did you ever think you'd find you formed such a close spiritual bond with a former cop?
7: <laughs> I like to look at Mike as a whistleblower and somebody who found truth. and um, so I don't look at Mike as a former as a former cop. I look at him as somebody who found truth and he went to meet that truth and be with that truth and walk in that truth. And that's the person that I met shifted our sensibilities, especially those who needed sensibility shifting to occur. He was able to do that and that was his truth. That was that was the etheric piece of Mike. There's Mike the person and then there's all of the energy that Mike held and it's all of that stuff that is the shifter, the shape shifter. And he was able to help so many people locate the, the truth of what we're doing here and what is happening
0: here. Well, you were one of the last people uh, who, to speak to Mike. Your last conversation was on uh, the Lifeboat Hour, I, I, I believe, and uh, his last, his very last program. Could you maybe talk about you know, your reflections on that conversation and the, the subsequent news that he had died apparently by his own hand?
7: Well, I've been talking to Mike a lot that week, and um, on Thursday I called him. I I knew about his, not his plans to die, I knew about his his other plans, what was going on in that week, and and he said to me um, that he was having Carolyn on, Carolyn Baker, and And he said, you know what, I'd like you to come on the show, too. And I said, oh, I don't need to come on the show. Carolyn's an an incredible um, speaker and has so much to offer and say. And he said, for sure. He said, but I really want you and Carolyn on together. And he was really adamant about it because I I was feeling that I, you know, I I, I wanted Carolyn to have all the space. You know, it was a show. We didn't know Mike was going to die. And. He started to sound um, that Thursday and Friday a, a little bit, a little bit frenetic. His energy was changing, and I felt it. And I asked him what was wrong. And you know, we had personal discussions about some things that that, like I said, are, are personal. But I could tell his energy was changing. Something was happening, and um, and and there was great importance in this moment, in the now, in this show happening. As it was about to, un, you know, to happen, and so I just went with it, and um, and then, of course, as we know, he killed himself right after the show. So for him, what I do know, and some of the things he shared with me, um, as far as having two women who he, um, I think I can say this, who he cherished and respected, he he had reverence for women and our place and in, in, from the beginning of time and our knowledge and our closeness to the earth. And I think for him that that was another piece of Mike's spirituality, and that was one of himself that he wanted to end his show with two women.
0: If he were around today, what do you think he'd be talking about on his show? What do you think he would be focusing on? What would he be saying about, if anything, about all of the developments that uh, have been going on in the last few years?
7: I think he did already talk about all of this. That's the thing. To be ahead of your time means that you've already spoken about the future. And of course, there really is no future. There's just today. So, Mike has spoken about this. He spoke about this about division. He's spoken about um, uh, politics. He's spoken about uh, oil and, and oil as money. He's, he's already, he saw all of this. Any which way you look at it, it's, it's been happening. Still happening, and it's going to continue to happen until we're no longer here. And that is what's happening. And he knew this already. I was going to say, if anything, he would no longer feel the need to talk about it. And look what happened. Mike no longer felt the need to talk about it.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to say about uh, you? Know, what, how you personally have gained and, and what the world has gained for Mike's presence on this planet?
7: I noticed this after Mike died. Um... I should say after Mike left his body, because I really don't feel that Mike died. um, Sometimes people need to wrap that in a form of terribleness, in a form of anger, in a form of, you know, uh, making sense of something. And the only way to do that is to put your own junk on it, you know. I see no junk around Mike. Mike was a shining star who I didn't have an opportunity to know long enough here on this planet, but who I know is with me and I know is with everybody if you allow that knowledge to exist in you and that we all do not just meet up later, but we never leave each other. And so I miss him less now because of that, because I, I, I'm i more in tune with that level of my reality of that reality that we don't leave the energies that we meld with you know that we get to stay with those and when we leave the body we're still with that because energy doesn't die and so yeah you know I I'm grateful for having met him I'm grateful for the star alignment for lining us up for him to call me and get in <laughs> touch with me and um, to be able to enjoy Him in the time frame of, you know, Earth that I was able to, and to see how many people received His truth. I mean, for me, that was beautiful, to see how many people He affected, He, he shifted. Um, um, wow, I mean, good for Him, you know? If we could all do that, we'd really be making change down here, but unfortunately, We're all still pretty wrapped up in the fact that we think this is kind of two-dimensional here. You know, we got a body, and we do these things, and we live in our chains. Mike wasn't like that.
0: Before we close this program, we wanted to hear from one more voice. Mike Rupert had fallen in love with a special woman named Jessie Ray, and she with him. A special note was left for her explaining his departure from this world and her life. She declined an on-the-record interview with the Global Research News Hour, but expressed support for this endeavor and wishes to include the following statement. Mike was my friend. I think of him every day. Mike wanted to be of service to this world, and he did it the only way he knew how, with fearless passion and unbending dedication. I can think of nothing more attractive than that. He was a light in the dark to so many people, and he taught us to be vigilant. He changed the course of my life, and I'm forever grateful for the time we spent together and all I've learned from him, both in life and in death. This program is dedicated to Jesse Ray and to Mike's beloved dog, Rags. We've reached the end of this special edition of the Global Research News Hour, airing on Winnipeg radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. The show is available for download at globalresearch.ca. We've heard excerpts from previous interviews with Mike Rupert from the CKUW programs "Here There Be Dragons and Global Research NewsHour. You can reach us with your feedback at globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Music this week was provided by the David Bearwald. We'll end this show with one of his most popular songs. Thank you for joining us. My name is Michael Welch. Join us again next week.
1: Soon you'll forget me I'll fade from your memory And that's how it should be You won't need me now The world will embrace you And lovers will chase you Their kisses will take you Where I could never go i never change I'm forever the same hope you call out my name when you need me and someday you'll be young again and we'll play like we did back then and fly far away you and I my friend someday when no burden let me be your servant silent and certain as time ticking by like a star let it guide you and hide it inside you and know I'll be by to protect you from harm. be never dark shadows or shade let sad memories fade till you need them and someday when you're young again we'll play like we did back then and fly far away you and I my friend someday
7: when you're